0: This is Jacobin Radio. I'm producer Melissa Figueroa, sitting in for Susie Weissman. Today we are paying tribute to the late Daniel Ellsberg, who died at age 92 on June 16th. He was a guest on this program, and always generous with his time, a committed, consequential activist with a moral compass that never left him. Longtime senior producer and program director Alan Minsky, now executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, did a town hall meeting with Ellsberg this past April, during what they call Daniel Ellsberg Week, to defuse nuclear war. Ellsberg gives his thoughts on the current geopolitical situation, the continuing dire threat to humanity posed by heightened militarism and nuclear confrontation, and the need to keep fighting for progressive foreign policy. They are also joined in this event by Chris Oppie, a historian of the Vietnam War who is working on a book about Daniel Ellsberg. We'll also ask for your support during this KPFK fun drive, so stay tuned after the program and pledge your support. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm producer Melissa Figueroa, sitting in for Susie Weissman. Today we honor Daniel Ellsberg, one of the most impactful figures on the history of the 20th century. Once a supporter of the Vietnam War, Daniel's decision to become a whistleblower by leaking the famous Pentagon Papers woke up a nation and, in alliance with the anti-war movement, brought an end to the Vietnam War. Looking back on his life, Ellsberg said, When I copied the Pentagon Papers in 1969, I had every reason to think I would be spending the rest of my life behind bars. It was a fate I would gladly have accepted if it meant hastening the end of the Vietnam War, unlikely as that seemed. After the war, Ellsberg spent decades working to alert the world to the perils of nuclear war and wrongful interventions. As I look back on the last 60 years of my life, he wrote recently, I think there is no greater cause to which I could have dedicated my efforts. Ellsberg was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer earlier this year and passed away on June 16th at the age of 92. A statement released by his family after his death said that Daniel was a seeker of truth and a patriotic truth-teller, an anti-war activist, a beloved husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, a dear friend to many, and an inspiration to countless more. He will be dearly missed by all of us. Today, we feature Daniel Ellsberg in his own words during a recent appearance at a Progressive Democrats of America town hall on April 9, 2023, shortly after publicly announcing his terminal illness. He is joined by PDA Executive Director, Alan Minsky, as well as historian, Chris Oppie, who is writing a book about Ellsberg's life. Here to introduce Daniel Ellsberg is Progressive Democrats of America Executive Director, Alan Minsky. I've been told
1: that a very special person has joined us and would like to say hello and that 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 person is Daniel Ellsberg. Welcome, Daniel Ellsberg, and we are so honored to have you here. And as I think I, I sent you a message earlier this week, let us just say this, and I know it's all humility, of course, respected. You are truly beloved by the supporters, activists, and members of Progressive Democrats of America. Welcome, Daniel Ellsberg.
2: Thank you very much. I'm glad to be able to say a few words Actually, those who know me will not expect me to say a few words, but I may surprise you. (laughs) Actually, there's somebody saying, support Daniel Ellsberg by answering this petition. I saw it here somewhere. I just signed it personally saying as follows. I fully uh, take a look at the petition. In fact, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's pretty short here. I'll just read it here. It's time to stop the killing and devastation, ceasefire and peace negotiations. Now, it says here, to Presidents Biden, Putin, and Zelensky, the war in Ukraine has taken hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian and Russian lives, uprooted millions, contaminated land, air, and water, and worsened the climate crisis. The longer the war goes on, the greater the danger of spiraling escalation, which can lead to a wider war, environmental devastation, and nuclear annihilation. The war diverts billions that could be addressing urgent human needs. Total military victory cannot be achieved by either Russia or Ukraine. It is time to support the calls by Pope Francis, United Nations Secretary General Guterres, Presidents Lula de Silva of Brazil, Erdogan of Turkey, Xi of China, and others for a ceasefire and negotiated end to this calamitous war. Stop the killing, agree to a ceasefire, and begin negotiations. So I don't have it in front of me but my personal comment on was I said I expressed this uh, fully supported and it is essential urgently to stop this escalating war which has a real risk of leading to nuclear war and I said it's unconscionable to hold the entire human population of the world hostage to the issue of who controls the donbas and Crimea, which I think is where we are now. There's an obvious problem with this. I would say not everyone here may agree, but I'll say it from my point of view. And it's, I, I it's not so often that I agree with a majority view, I think, in, in the West. But in this case, yes, I see the Russian invasion of Ukraine as being clear cut aggression as was the US invasion of Iraq. It's actually dizzying to me to see the invasion described I think correctly as aggression without any reference as if, as Biden has put it, this were an unprecedented aggression invasion in this century or any other time. There's been nothing like this in Europe or nothing like this anywhere. They say it actually makes me faint with dizziness to hear uh, anyone say that, especially our president, without any mention of Iraq, which was exactly as aggressive and uh, as violative of the UN Charter and of any uh, sense of aggression here. That is not to say, of course, that it is less than aggression. And again, many people, including people who've long been my associates, emphasize the point that the Russian aggression was provoked uh, in this case, or that the invasion was provoked. I do agree with the point that I think that ruling circles in this country are and were happy to see this act by Russia, which actually resuscitates NATO, resuscitates the U.S. as the head of NATO, and that's in a dominant position in Europe, which actually we would not be in otherwise. And, and allows an almost indefinitely long and, and huge scale of sales by the military industrial complex, uh, not only not just to Ukraine, but to all the members of NATO, including the new ones and including all those members new. Um, by new, I mean Sweden and Finland. Sweden isn't in yet. But most of the newer members, what has been called the new Europe here, the new NATO are actually equipped with Russian weapons, and the the lust of the military-industrial complex to replace those weapons with American weapons, I think, is enormous. And uh, it's a tremendous market for them. And I do believe that these uh, circles, which so far have been dominant in the U.S., would be happy to see this war continue at this level indefinitely that uh, there is no downside to it for them. Ukrainian lives, of course, but I think that's simply not taken into consideration by people in the Pentagon or the CIA or the White House, or I have to say the American public. This is something that 92 is is very disheartening to me, but I don't think we're really that different from other Imperial countries in this respect or other countries. That people who are defined by our leaders as enemies and even allies who are other than us in culture, religions, color, or any, or just nationality play no part in our considerations anymore. As the Pentagon paper showed in 7,000 pages, there was not one line suggesting concern for Vietnamese lives on either side and on the Russian side right now. How many Russians actually believe, as in polls indicate, that all that Russians are killing in Ukraine are neo-Nazis? Neo-Nazi infants, neo-Nazis mothers, neo-Nazi sick people in hospitals, whatever, maternity. I I think it is possible for humans to consider themselves as um, willing to kill almost any number of these other people. And that's what's going on on both sides in Ukraine right now. Meanwhile, both sides are using nuclear weapons right now Mm. and using them effectively. Mm. Weapons we've been using for 70 years now, the way that a gun is used when you point it at somebody's head in a confrontation or you keep it on your hip ostentatiously, as in NATO, NATO policy having been based from the very beginning On the threat and readiness and rehearsal and deployment and production of weapons to initiate nuclear war with against the then supposedly overwhelming conventional forces of Russia. A first use threat, in other words, has been the basis of NATO all the time until now. Is it possible, I ask, that Americans and others in NATO might notice for the first time how insane and unconscionable immoral this threat and readiness is, now at last, when they're facing it, looking down the barrel of a Russian threat. I would say that Putin's discussion that he is willing to initiate nuclear war to prevent losing Crimea or the Donbass, I will say this very many people may, may not like to hear me say this. I'm saying that's an insane... An unconscionable threat. And it has been on the U.S. side all these years. It is crazy to think that the whole world risking nuclear winter, which would kill not all humans, but 90 to 98% of them. Mm -hmm. 98% would leave a lot of humans, 160 million humans, right? They're not, it's not extinction, but a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia would threaten not millions, not hundreds of millions, but 7 billion people and more. Not the 8 billion of all. No, life goes on. They inherit all the weapons. They can do it all again, uh, if that makes you feel better about anything. It doesn't me. But what is at risk here is a war that has a real chance of escalating to a US-Russian nuclear war. And I emphasize US and Russia because they are the two out of the nine nuclear powers that have unquestionably a doomsday machine, one that can produce nuclear winter by burning 200 or more cities, lofting the smoke into the stratosphere where we will block 70% of the sunlight for as much as a decade and certainly for years, long enough to starve most people on earth to death. So most people on earth right now are hostage to the possibility of nuclear war in this particular case, right. threatened and initiated by Putin, where in an area where Russia no longer has the overwhelming conventional force. On the contrary, Warsaw Pact having switched sides and moved over to NATO. Now in these areas, it's NATO that has the conventional superiority. So we're no longer relying in that on the threat of first use of nuclear weapons which NATO has done for, I say, close to 70 years. Taiwan, looking ahead to that, is an area where the Chinese have built up their conventional forces to a point of at least parity, if not superiority, in the region for the first time to the U.S. And there, implicitly, the determination to prevent Taiwan from seceding from China the way that Putin sees Ukraine as having seceded from Russia, where it is naturally uh, should be installed. There, the U.S., I think, is implicitly ready to initiate nuclear war, having rejected the notion of no first use, which I think Biden is not willing to uh, announce. We will not under any circumstances initiate nuclear war. We will not make the threat any longer that Putin is now making in imitation of the threats we've made for the last half century. We've stopped that. We won't make such threats anymore. We recognize, especially after the first Cold War ended 30 years ago, that that is an insane, unconscionable threat to all the people of the world. He's not gonna say that because he feels he needs that threat for Taiwan. And uh, that he's not going to allow people to say, you, Biden, have invited a Chinese invasion of Taiwan by removing the threat of initiating nuclear war. So in other words, Biden, Blinken, Austin, the others who were uh, involved in this thing are not in a position to say to Putin what is, I would say, the moral reality here is it's absolutely unconscionable and wrong unacceptable, intolerable, to be threatening and preparing to initiate nuclear war. Notice that Putin just weeks ago trumpeted the fact that he has moved tactical nuclear weapons into Belarus, and he probably has them in Kaliningrad. That doesn't make any real difference. It's just that he could already hit them from where he is. But he is trying to emphasize symbolically that he is prepared to use those weapons to keep on to Crimea, which nearly all Russians regard as Russian, and the Donbass, where a lot of the people are Russian, speak Russian, where it hasn't been determined where their allegiance is in any real poll. But to make these issues then the subject of a threat to use nuclear war should be recognizable as absolutely unconscionable, and it isn't because we have been making those threats. And when I say both both sides are making the threat right now, without Putin's threats of nuclear war, the US would be sending troops, American crews for the tanks, American crews for planes. F-16s would not be in question without American pilots. They would be there with American pilots without the fear of escalating to nuclear war. And on the other side, Without the fear of escalating to nuclear war, Putin would be hitting, considering as he is, that he's justified in what he's doing in returning Ukraine, especially Crimea to Russian control, would be hitting Polish supply bases in Poland and Romania and elsewhere right now. I'm saying they're both demonstrating that nuclear threats are regarded as legitimate by major nuclear powers and that they can work. And of course they can work and they have worked in the past. They kept West Berlin inside the NATO orbit inside East Germany for 50 years without the threat to blow up the world, which we were ready and prepared to. Bring, West Berlin would certainly have been walked into by Russian troops. And I could give many other examples of this. Yes, they can work, but the, at the cost and the risk, of holding the entire world hostage to that particular instrument and raising a real possibility of nuclear winter. I'll come to the end here. I agree with Biden when he says that the world is in greater danger of nuclear war at this moment since any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis in which I, when I was 30, I participated in that I was 31. In 1962, 60 years ago, I participated then in working groups that reported to the executive com- committee of the of the NSC, the XCOM, supposedly. And I, I lived through that. Yes, there was a very real risk of nuclear war, then, greater than any of us realized at the time. Greater, I will say, as a student of this than Khrushchev knew, or Kennedy knew, or anybody knew at that time. The risk of the world blowing up at that point was greater than really any leader knew. I'd say at this very time, whatever the provocation, the justice of defending against aggression, of re, of the question of who should control those borders, um should not be <laughs> Risking, We should not continue to risk an escalating war that is leading us toward nuclear war under these circumstances. So when we talk about a ceasefire, both sides can say that's unfair, that leaves us whichever, and, and certainly the Western side can say, and many Democrats are saying, uh, well, that threatens letting Russia have some advantage from their having invaded it. A ceasefire means they're not entirely out. I'll just of Russia of Ukraine. I will say my opinion. Zelensky's demand that Russians be entirely out of Crimea and out of the Donbas is, in various historic terms, very reasonable. And to go on, yes, we will keep fighting until that happens, and we demand support for that uh, entirely. Uh, that they get out, we won't even negotiate except that in this world, in this nuclear era, to pursue those ends, which are ends which, let me just give a judgment, will never be achieved. That Russians will not get out entirely of Crimea, which they regard as Russian, or Eastern Donbas, without having tried some small nuclear weapons in order to get into negotiations on their terms which I think will, will not be terms for taking over Kiev or all of Ukraine, just for what Putin has asked for, all of the Donbass, all of Crimea, Ukraine out of NATO. This might actually have been available one year ago with 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 negotiations with Zelensky under the auspices of Erdogan. Awful guy to think of, you know, we're mm-hmm. following the lead of Erdogan here, or, or she or any of these people. But nevertheless... In Istanbul, they were close to that until Boris Johnson went over and said, for the U.S. and Britain, no concessions. No, this has to go on. This has to go on. However this war entered, however we entered it, I will say, that was a historic crime against humanity to continue a war that might have been stopped at that point or whatever Purposes by Johnson and by Biden and by anyone else, and the war is pointing toward that. Zelensky's goals, so however reasonable and defensible, point in the direction of nuclear winter, and the whole world, I will say, has standing to say that must not happen. This war, this war must end. This war cannot escalate, and find there must not. The be shooting between U.S. and Russian soldiers or pilots or any other representatives, any more than it should, must be shooting between the U.S. and Chinese. We had that in Korea, Chinese, when they didn't have nuclear weapons. There has not been any firing overtly between U.S. and Russian troops since 1920, 20, I'll give that precise figure which is when U.S. troops were shooting and being killed in Siberia and in against the Bolsheviks. And since 1920, this is after World War One started, the one person who has been shot overtly as opposed to covert operations is Major Anderson. And October 26th, when I was in the Pentagon, his U-2 was shot down by a Russian general against the order's of the Presidian and of Kristoff, and without the knowledge of Khrushchev, and the world was a hair's breadth away at that moment from us not being here. It, it rested on that. So we don't want to go through that again. <laughs> and the reason I'm asked on this program, I know at this point, is uh, this is close to the last chance I'll have no. to make this point. I've been making it for quite a while. And uh, I have another month or two, and so I'm delighted to have had the chance to say it it one last time. And so join that
1: petition, thank you. Thank you. Well, very quickly, while you mentioned that, sir, I I did mention at the top of the show that um, my father, who was only 76 at the time, the economist, Simon Minsky, uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, agreed to a very, very horrible regimen of chemotherapy, and he died uh, at, at just passing his 77th birthday. He really struggled, did not have the mental acuity that you have now. In retrospect, I I, you know, I, try, I respect his decision, but uh, it's beautiful to see you. And you look well. You look so vibrant. It's very hard to believe that you have the diagnosis and that it's terminal. Um, but how do you feel? You seem to feel I'm well. Having,
2: I'm having a great month here. uh,
1: We went through a flurry that maybe there might be some
2: specialized chemotherapy after I made my announcement, but that has been rejected on the basis of a biopsy and others. So I have the odds favor me having another good month. I'm having a very good month. At this moment upstairs, I am awaiting a takeout omelet with shrimps and scallops in it, which I haven't had for seven years because they're pure salt. And my Ah. congestive heart failure has not permitted me to have bacon, Thai, Indian, Chinese food, all my favorite foods. So I am now having a wonderful, every day is a birthday. I had a birthday two days ago uh, with a lot of chocolate cake and whatever, but I'm having a great time with my wife and my relatives and friends. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh,
1: thank you. We are so honored. Yes, please. I just want to say hello,
3: Dan. It's Chris Oppy.
1: Go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Dan Ellsberg. Chris, uh, we're speaking with Professor uh, Christian Oppie, uh, who is, uh, again, working on a book about Daniel you know, Ellsberg and oversees the or works inside the Ellsberg archives at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And um, just building off what he spoke about, how do you look at what, you know, obviously one thing that's happening on the left is there has been something of a split that has occurred around the Ukraine war respecting everyone's point of view. But Daniel Ellsberg, in a way, he even at one point, said, like, no matter what you may think of it, and then barreled into what he, his analysis was, this kind of um, no holds barred looking at the truth of the perspective, regardless of maybe uh, ideological uh, predilections. How Daniel Ellsberg was that presentation? That's the question. It's a bit of a softball.
3: Well, I I think one thing about Dan Ellsberg is he's always combined a visionary view with a pragmatic focus on what needs to be done and can be done now to make things better. So it's you know one thing to denounce the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, mm-hmm. but it's another to say okay let's let's really look at what the options are given the existential th- threats posed. Compromises must be made. I think he would say the same thing about the overarching presence, ongoing presence of nuclear weapons. Yes, the ultimate goal would be abolition, but there are concrete steps that could be made that would make the world safer prior to getting full abolition, like getting rid of ICBMs, which are on hair trigger alert and are the most destabilizing and and dangerous part of the nuclear arsenal. Or as he alluded to, for the United States to take the initiative of making a no first use pledge that Biden had campaigned on but for reasons that Dan explained is now certainly backing away from, but it would put Putin in the position of having to justify threats that other people are no longer making, and which we have made. One of the great virtues of Dan's book, The Doomsday Machine, is that it fully documents the ways in which the United States while justifying its nuclear policies on the grounds of deferring uh, or trying to prevent a Soviet surprise attack, had always also been, and maybe primarily had been, a policy of first use. That is to say, we had have always really been committed to the possibility of using nuclear weapons, in, certainly during the Cold War, uh, in the event that the Russians initiated even a conventional attack of some size. It was our war plan to respond with an all out attack on every Soviet and Chinese city. Uh, And one of the great things Dan discovered when he was just 30 years old and had privy to this classified information was that the Pentagon's own estimate, joint chiefs of staff, I should say, estimate of the casualties of the American war plan being put into practice would have killed in Soviet Union, China, and Eastern Europe, and other parts of the world through fallout, at least 600 million people. And this was before any knowledge of nuclear went or anything like that, which could have made it this sort of near extinction event. But that was our policy, I mean, we were going to knock out China, whether they had anything to do with a Soviet conventional attack or not. So these are the kinds of things that uh, have led Dan over the years to be as, you know, probably more committed to anti-nuclear policy than, uh, than the Vietnam War. I mean, he has been arrested. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but I think you've been engaged in more than 80 acts of civil disobedience uh, in, in your life. So uh, he presents a very inspiring model to to right up to the present.
1: Yeah, and one of the things, too, that I think is very important, and I actually did through, through Norman Solomon try to get a message to Mr. Ellsberg earlier this week, one of the things as the Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America, an organization that comes out of the Kucinich Campaign of 2004, comes out of the peace movement, has really been viewing policy from a very Ellsbergian perspective for the totality of our history, and then I love Bernie Sanders. He's our, definitely our lodestar on domestic policy uh, PDA famously drafted Bernie, who had a great record as a peace activist. However, foreign policy was muted in both Sanders' presidential runs. How do you, as a historian of 20th and 21st century American history, all the way up to 21st century, view the way in which the foreign policy critique has become muted and sort of like a, a second-tier focus? of the contemporary progressive movement, this new powerful progressive movement. I mean, I think it's very, you look at politicians like, I mean, I happen to know that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for instance, is very much in line in terms of her foreign policy analysis with the peace movement of the past four or five years but decades. it's
3: very discouraging. I mean, aside mm-hmm. from a few members in the uh, progressive caucus within Congress, there has been, right. a, you know, overwhelming majority have signed on to the biggest military budget uh, in our history, and even up the ante by an extra, whatever it was, $50 billion that the Pentagon, Biden hadn't even asked for. So if you want to see a significant drawdown uh, of the American imperial footprint around the world, I don't think we're going to find it among the Democrats, especially since the invasion of the Ukraine. It's made it, it, made it only more silent. But we do not have, as part of our public debate, any wide understanding of, never mind, dissent over the fact that we continue to have more than 800 military bases on foreign soil, spend more than the nine most militarized countries in the world on the military, and conduct, you know, more than 130 military operations and uh, exercises or operations in more than 130 countries in the world every year. So these are the kinds of subjects and debates that I really think the, the Democratic Party, we need to push Democrats to start to acknowledge and to, and to
1: resist. Well, Actually, it's great to talk to you about this and maybe do a little bit of a brainstorm and Daniel Ellsberg is still with us. One of the things I feel very strongly about and honored to be in the position that I'm in and honored to continue the work of Tim Carpenter, Steve Cobble, et cetera, with PDA, is to try to always bring forward a progressive democratic platform. And it has to be a 360-degree platform. It cannot shy away from a foreign policy strong component of that platform. And I think at following the two Sanders campaigns, the manner in which foreign policy was muted, I hope to work with people on that over the next period uh, before we get into the 2024 cycle. But yes, uh it it has been a peculiar quirk of the progressive movement. But I do also want to say, uh, Chris, so you understand what we do here, we really do see uh, the progressives as a party within a party. And so it really is incumbent upon us to produce our own foreign policy, as it were doctrine, right, in contrast to the mainstream Democrats who have become seemingly, I mean, boy, what did you make, Chris Appy, of the 2016 Democratic Convention? I mean, that was... A level of war hawkism from the democratic party that we hadn't seen previously because it was very very pronounced
3: yeah indeed i mean so much for a reset with russia remember as Hillary clinton had once promised no it was alarming and i don't know what's going to happen in 24 in terms of foreign policy a lot will depend on where we are with ukraine i mean if we could miraculously get some kind of ceasefire there there might be an opening. I don't know. What Dan, do you have any hopes about twenty-four being different? In the by the time we get to the twenty-four presidential election, there will be uh, the Democrats will uh, take a less militant line on foreign policy.
2: Well, keeping in mind and not being either funny or sober, I, I won't be here for that. I'm going to miss that one. And I-, I actually have to say this be something. I'm not sorry to miss that stuff. When I say that I'm in favor of this position of a ceasefire in Ukraine right now, I don't actually see that happening. I think it's not impossible, extremely unlikely. I think when I ask suggest anybody do anything, all I can see on connection with climate or nuclear weapons, it's a matter of enlarging a very small possibility of our survival here to a somewhat less small possibility, which I think is not zero in any case. We can see so many examples in my lifetime, I have to say. I lived long enough to see a number of things that really were totally unforeseeable. They were like secular miracles. They were impossible to happen. For the Berlin Wall to come down in 1989, that was not Unlikely. Mm-hmm. That was impossible. You know, just uh, it requires looking. It was out of the question. Mandela becoming uh, without a violent revolution becoming president of South Africa with all the limitations in both cases of what that meant for the world. It was just an event that was not foreseeable. It was it was impossible. I think we rely on that sort of thing right now. I can't force the, the Democrats. I'm sorry to say are um, looking absolutely terrible on the defense budget, on Ukraine, on Taiwan. In fact, it's very hard to see a difference from on any of those issues from the Republicans, who look, in general, even worse. But on this issue, on climate, it's impossible. You can't say that uh, the—I mean, anyone who says the Republicans are— no worse than the Democrats is is mad, you know, or in general. But <laughs> on the defense budget, or on Ukraine, or even Taiwan, I don't. You can't say that. Uh, these these this crazy party is not actually worse than than the Democrats on these issues. Uh, why do the Democrats acting right now as if they want war with China? When actually a questioning of making high level, high level trips to Taiwan and recognizing and moving toward recognizing Taiwan as independent, which China for seven, forever since 1945, but in particular since 1979, when we recognized the one China policy, it has been accepted that that is a red line that leads not just to difficulty and turmoil, but to war, to war. And why are we doing it? I don't have an answer to that, by the way. I don't know if somebody else does. Why, so why is Pelosi going? Why is he even, I'm sorry to say it, Ro Khanna, a perfect guy, a progressive here, going to Taiwan? What is that? And uh, any more than McCarthy. And uh, why, was it, why is it necessary to do that? And taking a look at, at Ukraine, as you say, competing to send more weapons there, the problem there is, that Zelensky's aims, which are not unreasonable as aims in a non-nuclear era, that his aims of expelling every Russian from Crimea and Donbas cannot be achieved without U.S. direct involvement. And he's been talking about, you know, no-fly zones, as did Hillary Clinton right from the beginning. That's direct shooting between uh, U.S. and, and Russians as in the Major Anderson case. Uh, I, I don't think Putin is would face losing the Crimea or the Eastern Donbas, which he had before, without US direct involvement. But there are many Americans, including many Democrats, who are basically pressing for US direct involvement. That does confront him with losing what is, in, in terms of Crimea, part of Russia. And he has said, As we said about West Berlin and about all these other places, we go to nuclear war before we we allow that. It's it's always been insane and immoral and crazy, but here it is. So the Democrats are looking. uh, So you ask me, what do I see in 2024? (laughs) Look, Biden could have been a lot worse so far. Uh, He has resisted a no-fly zone, which Hillary Clinton and many others were pressing for. And others. He has resisted so far sending F-16s. Let me, me, pardon me, but let me give you a little hint from from the old past, from being a very old man. I can remember something that I doubt even the older people on this program remember here. I will be looking hard if we do send F-16s, which of course Zelensky is not only asking for, but many people are pressing for, and which the military industrial complex would like to see. But they will be without American pilots, right? Which means they have to be trained for. You have to train to use them. Uh, They are training people right now to use F-16s. But only a few, and you need a lot more than that. I will be very interested. I looked up yesterday on the web two days ago. Does the F-16 have one seat or two seats? How many people here know that? I will tell you the answer. There are four models of the F-16, A, B, C, and D. Uh, It's a simple ordering here. D is the latest. A and C have one seat. B and D have two seats. Why does that make a difference? I'll tell you why. When I was in Vietnam in 1961 under Kennedy, we were using T-28s, which have two seats. They're training planes. And it was a directive by Kennedy, followed by Johnson, there must be a Vietnamese body in that plane. So they picked up a trooper, a cook, uh, a guard, whoever, they put him in the second seat in that plane, and with the words, don't touch anything. So that there would be, quote, and these were explicit words, so there would be, a Vietnamese body in the plane if that thing went down. Of course, the, so we could say, no, the American is just training him, just training him. It's really the oh. Vietnamese who's running the plane. So if we send F 16s with two seats, i just say a model B or D, look for one of those seats to be Ukrainian and the other to be American. And that's a way of sliding into these things, a direct American involvement in these things, as I say which uh, next there's American crews with the Abrams tanks. We admit we're sending model Abrams tanks. It takes them six months or a year to learn to use because they are so delicate. They're like the F-35. You know, they have a tremendous amount of maintenance and logistics and fuel and everything else. Um, so only Americans can run them, but we're sending over the, well, will there be American crews? American crews can do that in American logistics. So watch for this kind of thing. And that's what I'm saying. There there are differences that would not mean anything to anybody uh, just looking at it, except that they mean that for the first time since 1920, that is 103 years ago. Americans are firing it at, at Russians. And the difference that makes is each side has shown that it's willing to lose a war against a proxy of the other side. Soviets were willing to lose Afghanistan without using nuclear weapons. We lost Vietnam without using nuclear weapons. We stalemated in Korea without using weapons. Very good. People wouldn't have predicted that. What has not been tested is will either side be willing to use a, lose a war against the other side, the other superpower, without using nuclear weapons? Putin says no. I, I believe him. I don't think he's just bluffing. I don't want to test that. That's what I'm saying. So in 2024, you can't rely on the Democrats as they are. By the way, I'll I'll say a word here for Biden. Biden has said so far, having gotten into it, Biden has said no American troops. He said that from the beginning. And uh, they've even said if they use one nuclear weapon, we won't reply with a nuclear weapon. Good. No one has said that in 70 years. That's a first. Is that inviting him to use a nuclear weapon? No, I don't. I, I think they're thinking because it really is possible he will use one or two to get us into negotiations. And we don't have, want to have committed ourselves to replying with a nuclear weapon. We'd rather not. You know? We'll do something big otherwise, as Petraeus says. We'll destroy the Baltic fleet. We'll destroy their troops in Ukraine. We'll do something very big without using nuclear weapons. Well, what if he uses two or three little nuclear weapons? Very small. They have many nukes that go to tens of tons. Our lowest one is 300 tons, which is no firecracker. But we have, we, we our B-26 Mod-12 has a 300-ton thing. So they use a few of these things. They really don't kill very much. They demonstrate to the world, well, wow, you can use a nuclear weapon without blowing up the world dandy now our tactical nuclear weapons are a credible threat from now on and everybody will want to get them and so forth so you could be worse than biden on this and it's worse for the progressive democrats of biden say do not give in to the pressure from democrats and republicans and zelensky and others to use direct american troops don't change on that that is a very practical Goal here
1: now. Yeah, no, thank you. And we're we're 100% with you on that. In fact, I do have to say, Daniel Ellsberg, there's very little that you said that I personally disagree with. As I said, I know we do have a range of different perspectives on the issue of the Ukraine. And
2: War. by the way, if I may say, I think I've said a lot of things that a lot of people here listening, and this is no disrespect at all, will make them angry or controversial. We'll say, what, 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 what is he saying? This is Daniel Ellsberg is going, uh, has Alzheimer's as well as pancreatic cancer. <laughs> And so forth. So uh, I understand that I'm saying very controversial things, but since it's my last chance, I don't have anything to lose in the way of reputation or influence. (laughs)
0: Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Suzy Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.